We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 this morning. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. So if you've got a Bible, uh, get over to Ephesians 4. Uh, any of you who have children, or if you've ever been a child, no doubt has seen uh, this gentleman here. This is Mr. Potato Head, as you know. And the great thing about Mr. Potato Head is, although there's sort of a right way to put him together, there's also a little bit of creativity and tactile play involved, because he has separate parts that all combine to make one potato man, right? So there are ears, there's eyes, a nose, a mouth, arms, uh, feet, even a hat. This picture was taken by one of my coworkers who took the liberty of putting the Grace Bible Church logo on his hat. So this is a Mr. Potato Head, a Grace Bible Church potato head. You also know, though, that there is more than one way to put Mr. Potato Head together. All right, so if you have a kind of a weak stomach, you may not want to look at this next picture. Uh, Mr. Potato Head here, everything's in the wrong spot, right? The ears are trying to be something they're not. The nose is not where it should be. His arm is where his mouth should be. It's just sort of a grotesque arrangement. Some of you like this. This is creativity to you. This looks like a Picasso. Others of you, this looks terrible. It's, it's disgusting because nothing's where it belongs. Every part is trying to be something it's not. It's also possible, if you have many Mr. Potato Heads, that you could create uh, something like this, where it's all ears, right? There's nothing on him except ears. No eyes, no arms, no legs, nothing but ears everywhere, right? So there are a lot of things you could do with Mr. Potato Head. Why am I talking about him this morning? Because as we read through the book of Ephesians, we get the idea that the body of Christ is meant to be, just like Mr. Potato Head, meant to be a picture of unity in diversity, right? That there are lots of different parts of the body. And Paul uses this analogy here in Ephesians, and he'll use the same analogy in 1 Corinthians. There are a lot of different parts of the body that combine to make one whole man, right? One person in Jesus Christ that's supposed to look like Jesus, right? So the mature church, the mature body of Christ is one church composed of many parts, and each part has a role to play. That is, each of us has a part to play in the unifying and the maturing of the body of Christ. Now, as, you, as we've been through the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, let me just refresh our memory real quick. You'll remember that in the first three chapters of Ephesians, there really aren't any major imperatives. There aren't any really major commands. Most of Ephesians 1 through 3 is theology. And what Paul lays out is here's all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ to unify us in Jesus. That is to reconcile us to God when we were separated from God. So Jesus died for our sin. He rose again when we were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive, raised us up with him in Jesus Christ. Right. So now we're reconciled to God. And then you remember Ephesians 2, because we're reconciled to God, we're reconciled to one another. And the idea of Ephesians 2 was many diverse people, Jew and Gentile, male, female, slave and free, we see that in the writings of Paul, have been brought together, unified in Jesus Christ. All right, so Ephesians 1 through 3 gives us this grand picture of all that God has done. Now here in Ephesians 4, Paul rounds the corner and he enters the second major movement of the book of Ephesians where if there were only a few commands in Ephesians 1 through 3, we're going to see a lot in Ephesians 4 through 6. Basically, Ephesians 4 through 6, Paul says, now that I've described for you all that God has done in Jesus Christ, 
Walk in light of that. Live in light of that, right? So we follow and obey Jesus Christ, not so that God will approve of us, but because if you know Jesus and trust in him, God has approved of us. Because of what Jesus has done, because we are filled with the Spirit, because we're reconciled to God and one another, Paul will say, now what I want you to do is live that out so that the world around you can see the unity that is created by the gospel, so that the world around you that is broken and divided in chaos and sin can see the grace of God in Jesus Christ. In other words, the church is a living picture at its best of how God can take people who do not obey God and do not get along with one another, can take those people and unite them through the power of the Spirit into one body and then empower us to obey Him, to be like Him. And so the church in that sense really is the hope of the world. The church is the hope of a broken world. If you're troubled, by all the division, all the chaos, all the violence, all the hatred in the world around us. I think Paul would say, look, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ are part of the body of Christ and at its best, the body of Christ is meant to reflect Jesus, to be the hope of the world. If the world is ever going to see, this is the love of God lived out in people who have hands and feet and faces. They're going to see it in the church. So as Paul rounds the corner here in Ephesians 4, he's going to say, I want you to preserve the unity of the body of Christ. And here's what he'll say. You do that. One of the ways you preserve the unity of the body of Christ is when each individual part fulfills its role. That is, every single person in this room, he's going to say each one of us is given gifts for the purpose of unifying and bringing maturity to the body of Christ. That that is, you and I each have some gift, some part to play. And if we are not playing that part, we are not contributing what God wants us to contribute to the growth and maturity of the church. So maybe you have been coming to church for years, but primarily as just a receiver, and, and so Ephesians 4 is going to challenge you this morning to say, you need to actively begin to dive into this question. Where can I serve and use my gifts to build up the body of Christ? I wonder if you ever have asked yourself this question. Why do we come to church in a digital age? Right? Why is it that we don't just say, look, there are podcasts of preachers that are better than the preacher I hear every week. So I'll just sit, I know. So I'll just sit and listen to them, right? We could do that. We actually could do that. You could even, if, even if you were like, look, Matt is just the best. You could go online on Tuesday and listen to me and never walk into this room, right? Why is it that we come and we sing together? There's really no other place in our lives for most of us that we actually sing together, except maybe at Aggie Games. But why do we come and we sing these songs together when we could just hit play on iTunes, Why do we do that? Why do we still gather together? I think the the way that Paul would answer that question is to say this. We gather together not because there's a show we need to see, but because there's a body we need to contribute to so that we gather together and together we sing these songs and we hear the voices of those around us and we look at the faces of those around us and we say, in Jesus Christ, we worship together, we serve together, and we move out into the world together as believers in Jesus Christ who are very different from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic stations, we move out into the world together to reflect Jesus. That's going to be Ephesians chapter 4. 
And so the question for all of us to ask is, am I contributing what God is calling me to contribute in light of the gospel? Am I fulfilling the role God is calling me to fulfill through the power of the Spirit? Look at Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here's where Paul begins. He says, look, first of all, we're united in faith, right? We have one faith. And he says, in light of that, what I do, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And how do you do that? Well, with all humility, that is, I don't think too highly of myself. I don't walk in and think everybody needs me here because I'm the best, right? I'm better than everybody else. But in humility, I go, God has placed me here alongside the other people in the body of Christ. Humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Right, Paul says, look, you don't have to make the unity. Jesus has already done that. When Jesus died and rose again, he created unity in the body of Christ. But he says, what I want you to do is preserve it. In other words, just do your best not to mess it up. Okay, preserve the unity. One of the ways you do that, he's going to say, showing tolerance toward one another in love. What does that mean? Well, that word tolerance, Jesus actually used it in the Gospels. When he said this, he said, "Oh, faithless generation... How long shall I put up with you? Okay, that's the same word. Jesus looks at his disciples who lack faith and he says, how long shall I put up with you? That idea of tolerance is, I may not like you right now very much, but I put up with you. Why? For the sake of the gospel. Now, for some of you, you go, man, that that makes me feel uncomfortable to think that I would just be doing that. But the reality is that what one of the things Paul is saying is this, I may walk in on Sunday morning, or you may walk in and you see people and you go, I don't like that person very much. But Paul says, put up or tolerate one another in love. Why? Because Jesus actually did the same thing. That there were moments that you see Jesus looking at his disciples and seeming to say, you guys are really, really dumb right now. But he tolerates, why? Because he loves them. Because he came from his father to save them. Because he knows his father loves them. And because Jesus knows his mission. This is like when I was a kid and we would go on a car drive. I had two brothers and they would sit sometimes on either side of me, or sometimes I'd be over by a window, and as the car drive got longer, we would begin to elbow each other, or fight, or push, or argue, and my dad driving the car would always say, stop it, just get along, right? Just do it, just get along. I don't care what the issue is, just get along. And then he'd say, Matt, you look out your window, Dan, you look out your window, David, you look straight ahead, and say nothing. Just tolerate one another until we get home. For him, it was for his sanity, Paul says for the unity of the body of Christ, fundamentally what he's getting at is this, that there are things more important than the things that divide us. That we unite around fundamentals even if we're divided around areas of secondary importance. Again, look at verses four through six. He says, okay, there is one body, that is one church, 
one spirit. We're all united in the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, even with churches that are not meeting in this room, even with other churches, I loved seeing the video this morning of Brian Fisher and Will Lewis saying, we're going to partner together for the sake of a gospel initiative, even though we're from different churches, because we are united around Jesus Christ, one body in one spirit. It says you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, that is Jesus Christ. One faith, we believe together. One baptism. Now, he's not saying here, we all believe in sprinkling or we all believe in immersion or whatever. What he's getting at is we have all been immersed or identified with Jesus Christ. And water baptism is just really a symbol of that. In the New Testament, Paul will use baptism as an analogy to talk about how we, through the Spirit, have been identified with Jesus Christ. All of us, if you believe in Jesus Christ, have been baptized into Christ. We've been identified into Christ. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What basically he's getting at is this, that there are things that divide us, but there are more important things that unite us. So that when we come in on a Sunday morning and we say, I don't like the way that person talks or acts or thinks. They believe some things that are different than I. They do some things that are different from the way that I do them. Paul says, with humility and gentleness, You show tolerance toward one another and patience in love because we're united in Jesus Christ. I was thinking this week how often we're willing to do this, for example, as Texans, right? If you're in this room, uh, you are probably living in Texas. You may have originated in some other part of the country or maybe you're just here for the weekend. But most of us in this room, we live in Texas, right? So think about Texas. It's very diverse racially. It's very diverse economically. It's very diverse culturally. There are a lot of different dialects and a lot of different areas of Texas. But then there are things in Texas that unite us, right? So for example, we all agree pretty much that y'all is the proper second person plural pronoun in the English language, right? It's not you guys or you all or that abomination use guys that came from New Jersey. It's not that. It's y'all. So anywhere you go, you recognize that I'm speaking the right English if you come from Texas, right? We all pretty much agree that Chips and salsa don't contribute to your daily calorie total, right? So like if you're on a diet, you get, you know, 1,500 calories a day plus the chips and salsa, right? It adds on. There's always room in there, okay? We all basically agree that like Oklahoma is the worst, like it's the worst place ever. (laughs) Santa Ana is a jerk. We remember the Alamo, right? There are certain things that we all can unite around, even though we may say, you know what, I went to this university, I went to this university, I'm from East Texas, and those of us from this part of the country drive to East Texas, and we go, I don't know what you're saying out there, right? We, we have divisions, but then there are things that unite us. And Paul's going to say, look, in the body of Christ, I want you to preserve the unity that Jesus won with his death and resurrection. And the way that we preserve that unity is saying, despite these divisions of secondary importance, we unite around the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for our sin and rose again. And he'll say, we believe in the same God, we believe in the same Spirit, we believe in the same Jesus, we all affirm Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we all affirm the gospel, and so we unite around the gospel. And it's not that we can't ever discuss these matters of secondary importance, but they are matters of secondary importance. Right, so some of you come in on Sunday morning, and as we begin to sing, you look over and someone starts raising their hands, and you say, I don't like that. That's a slippery slope to charismatic. And why are they sitting on the front row doing that, right? 
And then others of you, you're raising your hands and you look over and somebody else has their hands in their pockets and you say, that person is dead inside and cold and emotionless and a virtual robot, right? And so we begin to divide in areas that the scripture never calls us to divide. When I used to lead worship at a church in Dallas, one day I got into a conversation with my drummer who played in our band. And I was just asking him some questions about his background in worship and how he learned to play the drums. And we were talking and he said, let me tell you a story. He said, when I was in college, his name was Rick. He said, when I was in college, uh, I played drums in a band in my church. And he said, one day after church, a guy came up and started asking me all kinds of questions about the drums. Like, where'd you learn to play drums, Rick? Why do you play drums? Do you like it? Do you enjoy it? Tell me about your walk with Jesus. All of these questions. And so we talked and I thought we were having a nice conversation. And then right at the end, the guy said, well, I really hope you enjoy playing Satan's bongos. And then he walked away. And Rick said, that it was funny on one hand, but really sad and demoralizing on the other hand. That he allowed a secondary issue to create division in the body of Christ when we're meant to be united in Jesus Christ. I think one of the biggest dangers that we face in the American church is that we allow secondary matters to divide us to the point that we will cut off fellowship and at times even say, I don't know how you could affirm this politician or this politician and still be a Christian, right? And so we make inclusion into our political group some sort of prerequisite of knowing Jesus. And it happens on both or all sides of the aisle. All right, and it's not that we never discuss secondary matters. Our church has a doctrinal statement that even includes some matters of secondary importance, right? We're a dispensational pre-trib rapture church, right? But we are not going to go to a church that worships Jesus Christ and say, I'm not going to see you in the kingdom unless you affirm the seven dispensations and name them. And they say, well, I'm not going to see you there unless you affirm the five points of Calvinism. Paul says, no, there's one body and one spirit, right? In matters of primary importance, yeah, we draw a line in the sand. When it comes to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when it comes to the deity of Jesus and the Trinity, and then on matters of secondary importance, we can discuss, we might even discuss passionately, but as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says we're united in faith. And then he's going to go on and say, in that unity, we are gifted for growth. Here's where he's going to head. Let me give a, a kind of a 30,000 foot picture before we dive into verses 7 to 16. Paul's going to say, we're united in the faith. And the way that you contribute to the growth of the body and the unity of the body is that all of these diverse people come together, bringing your experiences and your background and your gifts and your culture, and you contribute to the body of Christ to help build it up, to help us know Jesus better, to help us serve Jesus better. And the beauty of the body of Christ is that even people who are very different gather together under the banner of Jesus Christ and they say, I bring my gift of service or teaching or mercy or exhortation or whatever, and I lay it at the feet of Jesus for the use of the body of Jesus Christ. We're united under the banner of Jesus, and then we're gifted for growth. Look at verses 7 to 10 as we start this passage. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. 
Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Now let me pause here for a minute because I realize as we read that, many are going, what in the world is Paul talking about? Uh, This is one of the more challenging sections in the book of Ephesians. Here's where, where Paul is headed. Okay, he's talked about the unity Jesus has won. And now he says, look, to each person, Jesus has given gifts. God has given gifts for use in the body of Christ. And then he quotes a psalm. He quotes Psalm 68. Okay, and if you were to go to Psalm 68, you'll find that Psalm 68 is a victory psalm. Okay, it's a psalm about how God defeats the enemies of Israel. And then what it says is after God defeats those enemies, he receives, he receives gifts from men. In other words, like any ancient king, when God wins a battle, he walks through the camp of the enemy and he takes spoils, right? He takes plunder and spoils. He receives these gifts. So any ancient king, when he won the battle, could go through and say, that pile of gold is mine, that crown is mine, that necklace is mine, you have the new Xbox, that's mine too, right? Anything he wanted belonged to him. Okay, and so what Psalm 68 says is when God wins, God gets all the spoils. Now Paul, interestingly, changes the wording of Psalm 68 just a little bit here when he quotes it. Instead of receiving gifts, it says Jesus gives gifts. Right, what Paul says is, look, he ascended into the heavens, and if he ascended, that means he must have also descended, right? Jesus came to earth, he died, he went to the grave, the lower parts of the earth, then he ascended again, and he leads the world, the universe, in victory. And Jesus owns everything in the universe now, right? He, he took captive sin and death and Satan. Everything belongs to him. And Jesus has all the spoils of the cosmos. And what does he do with it? He gives it to us. That's what Paul was saying. Jesus takes all the power and authority and reign over the world. And then he walks in a victory parade through his people and says, here's a gift for you. Here's a gift for you. Here's a gift for you. And what I want you to do with those gifts is utilize those gifts for the furthering of the gospel and the maturing of the body of Christ and the unifying of God's people. Uh, I was remembering this week that when I was in high school, I grew up in Dallas. When I was in high school in 1993, the Dallas Cowboys won the Super Bowl for the first time in like 15 years. Right? And if you grew up in Dallas, you know that the Dallas Cowboys, like when they win the Super Bowl, it's not just another game. Right? It is a spiritual and cosmic event to the people of Dallas. Right? So it had been a long time since they had won the Super Bowl. And so they planned a big parade in the middle of downtown Dallas. And it was on a weekday. And I'm not making this up. I would guess that like half of my school, their parents took them out of school to go to the Dallas Cowboys parade because the philosophy in Texas about football is whatever it is you're going to learn about math is just not as important as a parade for the Cowboys, right? It was that important. Thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people went to downtown Dallas to cheer for this team, 
And they rode in victory through the streets of Dallas. Now, if you know anything about the Super Bowl, of course, you know that there's a lot of money attached to it, right? And the winners receive a whole lot of money. They get bonuses and they get new contracts worth millions and and they get all of these endorsements and there's all of this money. And so the players who win, they receive all of these gifts and spoils and trophies and money. Now, I want you to imagine for a second that all of the millions of dollars are piled up on their float or car or whatever as they're going through Dallas. And instead of saying, I'm going to take my millions and go buy myself a big house or a better car or a boat or whatever or go to Disney World they say as they drive down the center of Dallas they go there's a thousand bucks for you there's a thousand bucks for you there's a thousand bucks for you everybody gets a thousand dollars and they take the spoils of their victory and they say use the money to spread the brand of the Dallas Cowboys buy jerseys buy helmets make videos let everybody know we're the best and Dallas is the best and make it a better place filled with cowboy memorabilia. That's a picture of what Paul says Jesus did when he won the victory over the universe. Jesus rides in triumph and he says, I own everything and through the power of the Spirit, here's a gift for you and a gift for you and a gift for you and take the gifts that I give you and spread the name of Jesus Christ. Take the gifts that I give you and use them to build up the body of Christ so we can grow in maturity and understanding of who Jesus Christ is. That's what Paul says in verses 7 to 10. And then he's going to go on in verse 11 and actually list a few gifts. He says, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, the goal is that we continue to grow in unity, we continue to grow in maturity so that we look like God wants us to look, which is we're supposed to look like Jesus. And he lists a few gifts. He only lists a few here, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. All of these are leadership gifts. Now, what's interesting is here in Ephesians 4, Paul only lists these leadership gifts. But elsewhere in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Paul lists a whole lot of additional gifts. So that as you read through these other spiritual gift passages, you see a whole bunch of gifts. This is actually not even a complete list, but just a few others. There's prophecy, there's service, teaching, leadership, giving, mercy, exhortation, evangelism, faith, discernment, right? So Paul lists all these gifts. But here in Ephesians, why does he list just these leadership gifts? Well, here's what he's getting at. The leadership gifts that God gave to certain people are designed to do what? Well, they're not designed so those leaders can do all the work while everybody else observes. Instead, the gifts of the leaders are given for the equipping of the saints. That is, the gifts of the leaders are given for this purpose, to equip the saints to fulfill the work of the service of the body of Christ. That is, the reason there are leaders is so that leaders can help every single person figure out what is the gift I have? And how can I use it for the body of Christ? Right? The body of Christ is not intended to be all ears like all, or all mouths. It's not intended to be all teachers. It's not intended to be all people with the gift of discernment or all apostles or all prophets. But instead, Paul says, look, these leadership gifts, 
are given to equip the body of Christ so that every single person in the church can fulfill the purpose God has for them in Jesus Christ, to use their gift to contribute to the body of Jesus Christ, to help it grow in maturity. With this result, verses 14 to 16, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In other words, the idea is we won't be tossed around by the waves, right? If everybody's a teacher, who discerns whether the teachers are saying something correct or heretical, right? In fact, uh, groups where a teacher has inordinate power and nobody holds the teacher accountable, usually those are called cults. Because the reality is that if there is no other gift being exercised, there's nobody to listen and say, you know what, that, that's off. Right, a, a, a group where there is nobody using the gift of service, nothing happens. A group where there is nobody exercising the gift of mercy, often you have a hard-edged sort of prophetic voice, but a lot of anger and angst because there's no mercy. So Paul says, look, when we all use our gifts, what happens is not only with what we say, but in how we live out the gospel. We reflect Jesus Christ and we're not tossed around by every wave because we're balanced with the gifts that God has given. And the idea is we need one another. Everybody in this room, you have been given a gift or gifts by God. Paul says it, each of us was given a gift according to the measure of Christ's grace. Each of us, every single person in the room has been gifted for service and ministry. So if you, are, if you have a leadership gift, right? If you're a teacher or an evangelist or whatever it may be, your responsibility is to equip others to use their gifts. If you grab your gift and you say, what I'm gonna do with my gift is just always be in charge, always be out front, always do all the work, you're being disobedient to the scripture. But on the other hand, if you have a different gift and you're never using it, If all we do is sit and receive and consume and listen, but never participate with our gifts, you're also being disobedient to the scripture. Because each has been given a gift. This is why we come together and worship together and serve together and lead together and share the gospel together. Not because we need to hear a great teacher or great songs, but because we need each other in the body of Christ. So Paul will say, all of us are called to use these gifts for the maturity and the unity of the faith. Now, as you hear that, there may be a few objections that come into your mind when you think, okay, some of you may be going, I've been here for three months, six months, a year, and I'm not really utilizing uh, any gifts in service of the body. Now, many of you, probably most of you are, but some of you, maybe you're not. And it may be that you say, you know what, I, I simply do not have the time, right? Let's try that again. There we go. Well, it's going to do both. Okay, so you say, I don't have the time, okay? You say, look, I, I, I have so much going on. My kids are in six different sports, and I'm basically a poorly paid chauffeur. That's what I do with my week. I don't have any margin. 
All right, the reality is, though, that we, we make margin, don't we, for the things that matter. When we signed our kids up for those things and the coach said, look, if you're going to be a part of this team, you've got to show up to practice, you've got to show up to the games. Why? Because we need every person on the team to play. He said, okay, I get that. I understand that. If you've ever been on a team, you go, we need every person on the team to play in order for this team to succeed. And we tell that to our kids. We say that means we're going to make time for practice. We're going to make time to show up. We're going to make time to be a part of what's going on. Okay, we make time for those things that matter. And Paul would say, look, the church of Jesus Christ, if it's the hope of the world, there is no better use of your time than to say, I want to use my gifts, whether it's service or mercy or exhortation or teaching or whatever, I want to use my gifts to build up the body of Christ. And you may be saying, look, my gifts are not needed. And I, I would assure you, absolutely, Paul says they are. You say, look, I don't have some sort of visible gift, some sort of powerful gift. Maybe my gifts are not needed because nobody ever applauds my particular gift. If that's the case, let me encourage you to do something just even right now. Look around this room and ask yourself this question. Who put all of this stuff up this morning? Hey, some, of you, some of you, you're in the room, right? You put this stuff up. You're going to take it down afterwards. People with the gift of service or a passion for service said, I'm going to come and place chairs. And that's every bit as critical a ministry as somebody who's standing on this stage, right? Who gave the money so we can rent this school and buy the things that we have? In many cases, people with the gift of giving. Hopefully all of us are giving and all of us are serving, but there are some in the body that said, this is my passion, this is what God's designed me to do. The next time you get sick or find yourself in the hospital, the odds are good. It's somebody with the gift of mercy that will be the first one to show up to encourage you, to pray for you, and to help you as you heal. All right, so we all use our gifts to build up the body of Christ and lead one another toward maturity so we can reflect Jesus Christ. Your gifts are needed. And it may be that you simply say, you know what, I, I don't know what my gifts are. I don't know what I can do. I've never really engaged in service. And uh, for many, it may be you're relatively new to church or new to the faith, or you may be relatively young, and you say, I don't know what my gifts are. Let me give you a few ways you can figure that out. One is you can go onto our website, this grace-bible.org slash serve. There's a link near the top of that page for a spiritual gifts test, right? It's just a quiz. That they'll ask you some questions about the types of things that you like to do, the types of things you're good at, the types of things you're passionate about, and it'll give you a result. It'll kind of list out your top few spiritual gifts. There's nothing in the scripture that says you can't have more than one, right? But some will emerge as clearly at the top and others clearly toward the bottom, and you may look at that and say, yeah, that's me, right? But there's also some questions you can ask yourself. For example, what are you good at, right? Now, you don't have to be falsely modest here. The reality is there are things you know. Yeah, I'm good at that. If you're not sure, ask a family member, ask a friend. If your friend says, yeah, you're actually good at nothing, then then you may have a problem, right? But that's probably not going to happen, or you need better friends. What are you good at? What is it that you excel at? What are you passionate about? What is that thing that you say, when I think about contributing that to the body of Christ, man, my heart just starts racing and soaring. I remember years ago when I was in the college ministry, I showed up to help somebody move. 
which I'm always willing to do with a good attitude, but I wouldn't say it's like my gift. But there's a guy who shows up, a student, he shows up and he just has a smile as bright as the sun. And it's like six in the morning. And I said, David, why are you so happy? And he said, this is what I'm made to do. I love to help people move. He's like, I think my spiritual gift is moving stuff. And I was so tempted to be like, you got it, man. I'm going back to bed. Saturday morning, my spiritual gift is sleeping longer. But he was passionate about it. He was good at it. He said, this is a way I can serve the body of Christ. And nobody may ever see that. You may say, I love to be the one who visits the hospital, or who visits widows and orphans and cares for those in need. And nobody may ever see that. I love to be the one that sets up the chairs. Or you may say, you know what, I, I teach and I can lead a Bible study or I can disciple a younger Christian in the faith. What are you passionate about? What are some experiences in ministry or life that you've done that you, you love? You say, I just, I loved it. Maybe it's sharing the gospel. Maybe you're an evangelist. You're one of those people that you sit down on a plane and your entire section knows Jesus when you land. I know those people. You say, "I, I love that. I'm passionate about it. I've done it. And then what special skills do you possess? Maybe you have a spiritual gift that then is combined with some sort of ability you have. So you have the spiritual gift of service and you also happen to know a lot about soundboards. Right? You have the spiritual gift of mercy and you're also in the medical field. And so you say, maybe there's a way to partner my spiritual gift with my career to serve the body of Christ. What special skills do you possess in addition to what you're good at, what you're passionate about? And begin to ask those questions and figure out how might God be directing me to contribute to the growth and the unity and the maturity of the body of Christ so we can look like Jesus in all of his holiness and truthfulness and grace and love so that the world can see that the hope of the world is the church of Jesus Christ as we're empowered by the Spirit and unified, even in our diversity and even in our disagreements. We're unified in our faith, but gifted for growth. As we close, let me say this. If if you have been here for more than a few months and you're not serving, you're not using your gifts to contribute to the body of Christ, really what we want to do is we want to help you find that spot. You can come and talk to me. You can talk to Chris Thompson or Ryan Pale, our other two pastors here. We would love to help you figure that out, and that may be a process. It may be that there's one way initially that you say, I really want to serve, or I want to lead, right? And we, it may take us a while to find just the right spot, but we're committed to helping everybody find that spot and equipping you to do what God has called you to do so that our church can be all that God has called us to be so that we will look like Jesus and then be able to go out into the world and reflect him together and proclaim the good news together. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for the morning and thank you for this time. Thank you for unifying us in Jesus Christ and then gifting us for service. I pray we would each use our gifts for the maturity and the growth and the building up of the body so we won't be tossed by the waves, so we won't be divided around secondary matters, but united in Jesus Christ and equipped to reflect Jesus in the world 
so more can know Jesus Christ. I pray if there are any in here this morning who don't yet know you through Jesus, that they would believe that Jesus died for their sin and rose again. For those who know Jesus Christ, I pray we'd be filled with your spirit and be faithful with everything you've given us, our bodies, our minds, our money, our time, to build up the body of Christ, to serve you and to proclaim you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.